Open your Bibles this morning. We will be in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I want to give a shout out for everybody who was able to make it with us on Friday night. We came together to watch The Life of David, which was a play put together by Sight and Sound, which is a troupe on the East Coast. I had never heard of them before, and I'm just here to tell you, it was fantastic. We'll be doing another of those, I think, in the future to have one of their productions because they're so well done. I have a picture here of the night, and uh, this was uh, little David in his, in his youth of, uh, on the screen, and you can see they even have live animals in it. The, the sets were fantastic. It was a musical, so there was great singing. And one of the things I took away from Friday night, um, I know and you know that David was a king uh, in Israel. David was a warrior uh, David, you know, obviously fought battles, but one of the things that they really brought out in the night's uh, movie uh, is that David was also a musician. He was a guy that loved worship, and you could see the harp, the, uh, we'll go back to the harp, you could see the harp that uh, is on the back there of David. As a result of Friday night, I've changed the graphic for the sermon series, and show me the next slide, I put something else in it. And you'll notice on the far right-hand side, there's not just the sword now, there's not just the shield, there's not just the crown, but there's also the harp. And David is known for his psalms. He's a writer of the psalms in the scriptures, which oftentimes were music that the church or uh, God's people at that time sang. And so again, David's got this component of him that's a worshiper at heart, and I wanted to make sure and reflect that in the course of this series, and I know we'll hear more about that. Well... Today's story has that iconic feel of being a story most of you have probably heard of before. Today's story is David and his battle and defeat of Goliath. And I'm going to argue that this is probably in the top 10 best known stories in all of the Bible. In fact, this story is so well known that if even you're a non-Christian in our society today and you know any biblical stories whatsoever... This one probably makes it into your vocabulary. And so again, maybe you're saying today, Pastor, heard this story. I, you know, try to teach me something about it. I dare you. And I, if you are, I hope you'll be surprised today because there's quite a lot here. In fact, one of the things I want to start right off with is this is one of the longest stories that we have about David. The writer takes 58 verses to explain this story and he gives us a lot of detail in doing that and so again this story is iconic because it's the story that you already know the punchline of David beats Goliath and you know again there's something that's in our own vocabulary as a society even when we say oh yes it's a real David versus Goliath story we all know what we mean the little guy beat the big guy the, the, the institution got beat by the little one that had no chance, but somehow he made his way. All right, let me give you an example of a David versus Goliath moment, and it's probably one of the most iconic moments, at least in my memory, uh, of being alive. And I've got to take you back to 1980, Lake Placid, and it's the Olympics. Some of you know where I'm going, because there was one iconic thing that happened in that Olympics and it was the gold medal hockey match between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union had the vaunted Red Army hockey team that was four-time repeat champions at the Olympics, gold medalists. 
And the U.S. at that time didn't have any pro players that could play. So we had this ragtag group of college students that came together in order to play. And everybody in America tuned into it. I'm sure everybody also in the Soviet Union or Russia tuned into it and to watch the game. And somehow this little ragtag group of American guys made their way and won four to three. It was a time, in fact, I've got a picture up here for you of them celebrating. You could see the American flag in the background. And it was Cold War era still. So, you know, again, there's tensions between America and Russia, kind of like there is even today, but even a little bit more perhaps at the time. And it had, you know, implications that felt like they were even political as we won this hockey match. And it was just this soaring moment of pride. And it's this moment in which there's no way the little guy should have beat the big guy, but it it happened. It did. And everybody swelled with pride in America. I know that if you're alive during that time, you remember that because that was a very big deal. But I'm here to ask you, as we think about this story today, is that all that this story is really about? About the little guy beating the big guy? The one who's the scrappy one beating the powerhouse. Is that all this story's about? And my answer to you is no. That's not what this story is predominantly about. It, sure, it's there. All the vestiges or the pieces of that are, are there where the little guy beats the big guy. But the story today is about David trusting God. That's what this story is really about David's attention from the start of this story to the end of this story is on God and how he wishes to honor God with his life. And that's what is important for us to be able to pick up from the story today. Uh, Our story is really about how David trusted God for victory against Goliath. That's what it's really about. And transmitting that to your lives, it's about how you're trusting God for big moments in your life where you've got some Goliath of sorts, a big giant, a big problem you do not know how to tackle. And that's what this story is all about. How do we go about doing that? How do we trust God for a big victory in our lives when we have that need? Well, today I have five steps that David went through and five steps that we typically would go through when we have a big giant ahead of us that needs a victory, that we are trusting God for a victory in. And so let me march my way through the passage. I'm not going to read every verse of this passage. It's quite long, but I'm going to read it as we move along and tell the story as we move along, and I'll read bits and pieces of it, enough to put the whole story together. And here's where I want to start. Step one, if you want a spiritual victory and you want to trust God in that, is you've got to recognize your Goliath. You've got to recognize who your foe is. And I want you to notice as we get ready to read this first section of the passage how much detail the writer gives about Goliath. He gives excruciating detail about this guy. I'm picking up chapter 17, verse 2, and this is what the writer says. And Saul and the men at Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze." 
And he had bronze armor on his legs and he had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up battle? Am I not a Philistine and are not you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and I kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that, he, that we may fight together. And so the author is painting this picture of this man and he's giving all kinds of detail about him. And the first thing we notice is he's humongous. He's huge. And we're not quite sure how many a span is. There's a lot of debate around that. So the best estimate that I can guess is he's probably about seven feet tall, which for today is, is big. It's not you know, as big as it might have been then because, again, the average height they believe at that time was about five foot five for a man. So, you know, again, he's looking a, a, you know, a foot and a half taller than most men of his era. But that's not all that's about him. We're also supposed to say this guy's got all the military gear that's modern military gear. You know, he's got the Kevlar helmet, he's got the uh, AR-15, he's, you know, he's got grenades on his uh, belt, I mean, he's got everything that he needs in order to fight in a modern war, and that's what this guy is outfitted with. And the other thing that we're supposed to notice is he's well-trained. I mean, this is not his first fight, all right? He's, he's fought a lot of people in the past, and he's been victorious, and that's what gives him this swagger. You know, he's got this taunt about him. He's swagger because he's saying, I am going to defeat you. If you've got a Goliath in your life, chances are he's similar in some ways and dissimilar in others. For instance, I doubt that the Goliath in your life today is a man that's seven foot tall that's got armor and a sword and a helmet. That's not what you're facing. That's what David was facing. That's not what you're facing. Your Goliath is going to be somebody, however, that is experienced and mighty. And your foe will be like, or like a life in that way. David was facing him. You'll face your giant. And it could be something like this. Let me paint a picture for you of what some Goliaths might be in your life. It might be that teacher, either at high school perhaps or college, that just makes it a sport to put down the faith of anybody in the class, especially if you're a follower of Jesus and you love the Bible. Oh, he or she has just got all kinds of choice words about why that's stupid and why you're a dumb person for following in that path. And that might be the Goliath that you face. Your Goliath could be something that maybe is a health concern. I know individuals in the room today that have struggled or are struggling with cancer or Alzheimer's or some form of dementia. And you're like, man, this is just a giant. I do not know how I overcome that in my life. And let me give you one other practical way, and I'm going to tell you a true story right now, and this one really rang home to me this weekend because I learned this story this weekend. There's a friend I have, and he's in Pakistan. He's a Christian. He's a leader. And he is in the process of freeing a family from slavery in Pakistan. Did you know that in Pakistan today, there are 2 million people that are in slavery? It's known as debt slavery or debt bondage because landowners or uh, owners of businesses 
enslave people in order for them to work off their debt. I've got a picture of a family here. It's not the family that I'm talking about, but it's so common that there's photographs and there's stories of individuals that are enslaved in Pakistan. My friend is raising the money right now to free a family like that one who has been enslaved for seven generations in Pakistan under the same man. He's raising the money to be able to free those individuals by paying off that debt. And he's actually having to work with the governor of the region and actually the police of the region because you might imagine this guy's a pretty powerful guy and he does not want to let that business prospect go. The other thing that was just the breaking spot for this man, for my Christian friend, is he said, I I know that the family that's going to be released has a daughter that's about 14 years old. And this landowner has known to kind of have his way with the young ladies. And he says, I just can't stand to see that happen again. And so I'm going to step in and I'm going to attempt to free this family. Your Goliath has a certain level of power. And that's the way you can identify a Goliath. And also a Goliath typically is against the very things of God. He's against the things that are the best. And he has fear that exudes out around him to those that are uh, in his way, as it were. And that's something that's going to be true of any Goliath that you're facing. All right, here we are. Step two is show the right courage. When we are finished telling about Goliath in the scriptures here, one of the things that happens is it says everybody around him is filled with fear. Everybody in the army is uh, afraid of this humongous man. And enter David into the story. So David enters in shortly thereafter after we get this description. And David comes in and he has the little lowly task because he lives in Bethlehem. The fight's happening in the south, further south. He has the task, the very pedestrian task, of bringing cheese and bread to the men that are in the battle. And by the way, he's got three brothers that are in the battle. And so he does this little job of showing up with the cheese and with the bread. And he uh, hears Goliath in all of Goliath's bluster. And David says, wait just a second. Is nobody else offended at what they hear? Because this guy is demeaning the importance of our Lord. I'm picking up in verse 26 and it says, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David begins by saying, I am not letting this pass by. This guy is pretending that he's even greater than our God, and I'm not going to let that go. And so at this point, David is saying, I'm willing to fight him. (laughs) David's brother looks at him, his oldest brother, and he says, who do you think you are? You should be over there caring for your main responsibilities, which is, is the sheep. That's what you're charged to do. What are you doing over here? I think you've got an evil heart. All you really want to do is come and see the action. You're here for the show. David's like, no, I'm not. I I, I believe this guy is wrong, and I am willing to fight him. And once you've recognized your Goliath, there comes a moment at which you say, I must act. And I must act 
in the name of God and in the power of God for the purposes of God, but there's something inside of me that's saying, I need to have courage in this moment. I need to step forward and act. Jack Handy writes this. He says, there used to be a bully who would demand my lunch money every day. Since I was smaller, I'd give it to him. Then I decided to fight back. I started taking karate lessons, but then the karate lesson guy said that I had to start paying him $5 a week, so I just went back to paying the bully. (laughs) Too many feel that it's easier to pay the bully than it is to actually learn how to defeat him. And in our story today, David arose at the spot where he had to take action. And if you're facing a Goliath, the chance is pretty good that you also will arrive at that space. And at that moment, you're moving from fear into faith. You're moving from fear to faith at that very moment. All right, let's go to step three. You're going to fight with the right tools. Fight with the right tools. David shows up to Saul, and Saul's doubtful that David could win the battle. Uh, Saul, again, being the king at that time, and Saul has heard that David is willing to fight. By the way, Saul's not willing to, which is kind of a mark on him. He's the king. He's actually got stature. He should be the one leading the battle, but he's not. And so David shows up, and he is inquiring of David, and Saul says this to David. I'm in verse 33. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight for him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. So you're this young guy, and ever since you've been, he's been your age, he's been fighting battles, and there's no way that you can do this. But David insists, and he says, no, I can fight this battle. And he says to Saul, I have two examples of why I can go and fight and win. He says, you know what, when I was a shepherd, I had the responsibility of protecting my sheep. And there were predators that came around. And there are two instances, one when a bear, a bear came around, the other when a lion came around. And in both those instances, I trusted in God and I overtook those wild animals. Saul, this is just another wild animal over here. That's all Goliath is. And if I can defeat those two animals, I can defeat this animal too. And so he says, I am able to go about doing it. Saul concedes and says, well, I'll give you a chance. But Saul says... If you're going to go, at least take my armor. And so he gives David his armor. He gives him his helmet, he gives him his sword, and he gives him the body armor that he has. And this is the way that it is described. Then David said to Saul, uh, I can't, I'm in verse 39. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I've not tested them. So David put put, put them on. He took his staff in his hand and, oops, excuse me, I'm in the wrong section. Then Saul, I'm in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he, tied in, he tried in vain to go for he had never tested them. So again, David swims in this. We just see the cartoonish picture of David trying to put it on this armor and there's no way that it fits. And Saul assumes that he knows what David needs to go fight the battle. He needs this armor, and there's no way he can win unless he has this modern armor in order to go into battle. But the typical weapons are not what David needs at all. 
David doesn't need the typical things that are used by a warrior at that time. David needs the things that he's good at, and David needs the things that God is blessing. And so again, David says, I will tell you what I need. I need the things that, are, that were useful to me when I was a shepherd. And so now I'm picking up in verse 39. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I've not tested them. So David put them off. Then he put in his staff and in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Here's what I want you to hear. If you're going to go fight a Goliath, you've got to have the right tools. You've got to have the tools that are useful for you and useful in the sight of God, that are empowered by the, 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 the hand of God. And here's what I want you to learn. It's often unlikely things. They're they're not things that the world would think is powerful at all. And seldom does God use the same thing and repeat it again. Let me give you a couple of examples of things that God used in order to overcome big big Goliaths, big giants. Uh, Jericho. When they went and fought around Jericho, they used the very unconventional strategy of using trumpets and marching around the town seven times. Never been done since, had never been done up to that time, but that was the technique that God used. He used the plagues with Egypt, plagues of gnats and plagues of frogs and plagues of hail and all kinds of things that happened that convinced Pharaoh, hey, God means this, I'm to let the people go. And so again, this was the thing that God used in that moment. God used mud in the eyes of the blind man. Jesus puts the mud on, And, you know, he doesn't do that regularly, but he did it with that guy, and that's what worked for that guy. David, uh, excuse me, uh, Peter was in prison, and God used an earthquake to free Peter from prison. That hadn't been done up to that time, and that's not been done a lot since. So God is in the habit of using unconventional tools in order to equip his people. And furthermore, they're weapons that normally are not useful in this world, but somehow they become useful in the hands of God. I have one other verse I want to give you that I think was really instrumental for this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and this is what it says. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul writes this and Paul is no doubt saying, hey, we have these tools that we use. We use prayer. We have tools that we use. We use our faith. We have tools that we use, the assurance of our own salvation. We have tools that we use, the hope of what God is doing in the future and return for us. We have these instruments or these tools that we're using in our battle that are not of this world and wouldn't be recognized as valuable in this world, but those are the very tools that God is giving to us. And he says, when you use these tools, you're using them in faith and you're using them in the idea, again, that I'm aligning myself with God, I'm choosing to be with God, and he's going to use these things in my life and these things that, that he's given to me in order that uh, I might prevail and, and, and beat the uh, enemy, beat the Goliath uh, in this instance. All right. There's two more things I want you to see. Uh, four is, the fourth step is, fight for the right cause. We are down to the spot in the story where David and Goliath are ready to square off 
And he does something very interesting at this point in the story. He slows the story down. So we're ready to have the battle, and then all of a sudden it slows down. And there are, are two speeches that happen. A speech that's from the, the Goliath, the Philistine, and a speech from David. And both of those take up quite a little section of the commentary here. And anytime there's speeches like this, you pay special attention to them. And I'm picking up in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 42. And this is the way that uh, we, we hear it. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Every time you are facing a Goliath, it comes to the time in which you need to do a gut check. And you need to ask yourself the question, am I fighting for the right cause here? Is my cause one that is just? Is this about my glory? Or is this about God's glory? And let me not go and enter into any battle if it's for the wrong cause or it's with the wrong motivation. And so right down here to the end, they are trading these, these conversations or these yelling matches back and forth with each other before there's ever a javelin thrown or a, a, a stone slung. And they're saying, this is the reason I'm fighting. And David's saying, I'm fighting because you're defying God and I'm fighting for the honor of God and I'm fighting for the, really the protection of my whole country. Beware of fighting if you uh, have a giant and you're not signed on to the right cause because that will be a defeat automatically for you. All right, there's one more thing I want you to see. Trust God in the moment. That's step five. Trust God in the moment. And we have waited 47 verses to come to the space where we finally hear the battle. And what's so interesting about the battle is if you blink, you'll miss it. I mean, it's like really, really short. And so again, let's pay attention to the way that it's written. And this is picking up in verse 48. It says, When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand on his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on the ground. He fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. David then goes over and takes his own sword, cuts his head off, and he parades that kind of head around to Jerusalem and back to his own homeland in order to say, again, God is victorious. David trusted God when it mattered. He followed through and he took 
action when he had to. There are many times when biblical figures have gone through a whole lot of preparation, a whole lot of planning, but it comes down to the moment in which you've got to say, I'm now going to step over the line and I'm going to do it. Let me give you an example of this. Moses, again, he had the point at which he was with God in the desert and God's helping him overcome all of his concerns and he comes and tells the people that this is what he's going to do. He doesn't get the best reception there. But here's the point. He comes to the spot where he has to step in front of Pharaoh and say, let my people go. It's all window dressing until David is, or excuse me, Moses is ready to do that. Peter sees Jesus walking on water. Peter says, whoa, hey, I'd like to do that. Jesus says, come to me. It's not real till he steps out of the boat onto the water, all right? He's got to take that big step of, in the moment of action. Jesus himself, he prays at the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if it's your will, let this pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So I would just as soon not go through this, but it actually takes Jesus submitting himself to the cross unto death, and he must take that action in trust of God. Once you've done all the planning, once you've done all of the thinking, it comes down to the moment in which you have got to take action. And it's the moment in which the hands get a little bit clammy. It's the moment in which there's butterflies in the stomach because you are not sure what's going to happen and you've got to step over the line to be able to take action to do it. I have a story that's one that uh, Denise has told some of the women before here at church and uh, it's a number of years ago, it was about seven or eight years ago that Denise and my family and I took a vacation in Costa Rica. And one of the things that we did while in Costa Rica, there's a lot of jungles there that are really cool. And one of the things that we did was we went on one of the longest zip lines in all of South America. It was, it was huge, 17 different platforms that you are over the canopy of the rainforest there as you're taking the zip line. Now, that sounded really exciting for all of us and even for Denise at the point at which she was booking that trip. But the moment that we got a little closer to actually taking that zip line of actually standing on the platform and doing it, well, that began to become a concern for her. We showed up at the spot where they were staging us and getting us ready and it was a kind of a little uh, base camp, as it were. And you went inside that, and they gave you the harnesses that you were going to need, and the gloves that you were going to need, the helmet that you were going to need. It was all starting to get very real. Denise found out something very exciting that day when she was getting her gear on. She asked a few questions, and they said, oh, yeah, for anybody that's got a few concerns, we've got a guide that will go with you, and it's no extra charge. And he says, count me in, I want that. So they assigned her a guide, and you will never guess who the guide was. His name was Jesus. So it was Jesus and Denise that are getting ready to take the zip line. I've got a picture here of Jesus, young guy. Who wouldn't want to go with Jesus down, you know, on the zip line? You know? I mean, it was awesome. So she's starting to feel a little bit better. And uh, we begin to make our way up the trail as we are getting ready to go off of the platform. And, you know, it's, it's up pretty high, all right? And one of the things that we notice is that there's a long line of people waiting to go down the zip line. All of the people that have guides get to go first. So it was the little kids with Denise in tow <laughs> that make their way up to the platform. 
Denise wishes they could have been last, believe me. She gets up there, the little kids with their guides, boom, right down the zip line, woo boo boo. We're all waiting and looking at Denise, and it's like, you know, a little tear starting to kind of form in the eye. And kids are yelling out, Mom, you can do it. I've got the camera, I'm going, you know, so I've got a job. And, you know, it's, it's that moment. It's like, all right, I've built up to this. I've made all the planning. I've thought about it. But it takes me stepping off the platform and yielding to the zip line in order to be able to go down this. Denise says, if everybody hadn't been there, I would have marched right off that stage. <laughs> but she's a little peer pressure. You know, it's there. It's real. She did it. Yeah. <laughs> And she did it 17 times. So after that one, it was like, okay, I see how this is done. And Jesus has got me, so we're good. And so she ziplined over the canopy. I use that story, again, little giant, small G, right? I mean, not nearly the giant that we're talking about with our real discussion today. But the principle is the same. <laughs> you come to the moment in which you've got to take that action. Let me go back again. You've got to go to that school teacher and you've got to say, I need to talk. Because when you're using words like that, I, I do love God and I do love his scriptures. I'm a Jesus follower and I'm not ashamed of that. When you have a family that's in slavery, like I told you about at the start of the service here today, it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. My friend is going to take the authorities, the money, everything, the prayer effort, everything that's going to happen, and he's going to go to that landowner and say, I want to buy that family. And I've got the authorities here to help me to do that. And he's going to take that drive in the car for that moment of truth. And we all arrive at that space where there must be an action. And it can be scary, but if it's in the power of God, we're all good. David's story tells us about overcoming giants. The secret's not about us. The secret is that we fight in the power of God. I wonder what Goliaths might be in your life or what Goliaths are around the corner in your life. God specializes in defeating giants. We fight with His power and for His glory. And like David... We trust God to defeat the giants in our lives. If left to our own devices, we've got no power for that. But when we are relying upon Him, we've got all kinds of power to defeat giants. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for this iconic story in the Scriptures. We love You, and we love the story that You tell here because You overcome evil. That's what You do. That's what You're specially specialized at. And Lord, we thank you for that, and we ask that you would help us to view giants in our own lives as opportunities to trust you, and we count on you to show up at the moments in which we need you the most. Thank you for this story again, and thank you for our lives. For each person here, we want to trust you today, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.